Hey, we are in part four of this series that we're doing called, What If I Don't Know What I Believe? Oh, you got something, Larry? Right, right. Right. Amen. That's right. That's right. 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 Well, hey, I got a question for you. How many of you can raise your hand if you've ever said, hey, I've screwed something up? Okay. Today? Yeah. How many of you, raise your hand if you've ever said, I'm sorry? Well, Larry just said, that's all you got to do. All you got to do to be saved is say, I screwed it up and I'm sorry. And Jesus shows up and says, you're forgiven. So you let us right where we need to be. Well, hey, we are... uh, We're going to take a look at our fourth article of faith today, Um, and it is the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, the Word of God. And so, do you have a Bible with you? If you have a Bible with you, hold it up. If you have it on your phone, hold it up. Shine the light. Uh, Find your app. Um, Today, we're going to look at, um, at our fourth article of faith, which is the Word of God, Scriptures. But before we dive into that, I want to talk to you a a little bit about... um, I'm going to give you a picture of what, what our world kind of, how our world kind of sees faith and religion, um, things like that. And um, I don't know about you, but um, some of you have lived longer than me. Um, I, I, I think some of you here are well past me. And whenever I talk to somebody who is in their 80s or 90s or even older than that, I am blown away when I think about what you have experienced in those 80, 90 years uh, in change, the changes that, the, that we've made in the world, how many presidents you've seen, all of those experiences, um, uh, how many uh, technological advances. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, when, I mean, I'm, I'm only 52, and I, I remember when we went from a black and white to a color TV, and I remember getting my first video game system, and, and it was like this huge box, and it had, the controllers were actually attached to it. You couldn't go more than like three feet from the thing. And now with our phones, you can play or see or do anything in the palm of your hand. Uh, it, it, there are times when I look back, and I, I, I have a hard time believing how many things have changed. I mean, technology has changed. Politically, things have changed. I remember when I was in middle school, um, I actually, uh, in, in the sixth grade, uh, was an election year, and Jimmy Carter was running uh, against Ronald Reagan. And our class was going to have an election, so somehow I got, I got nominated to be Jimmy Carter. And the classmate got nominated to be Ronald Reagan. And this was when, you know, Democrats weren't so... No, I shouldn't say that. Never mind. I better, 
I better backtrack there. Anyway, uh, but I won the election as Jimmy Carter. Now, obviously, Jimmy Carter didn't beat Ronald Reagan in the real election, but I won in that election. And, and politics have so changed. There's, there is division in that. Uh, culturally, things have changed. Um, some may have a perspective that the amount of change that we've experienced in the world, whether it's technologically or politically or culturally, has all been for the better. And some may think that some of the changes that we've experienced, the vast amounts, um, ha- have not been so good. Some, some of us, I think some believe that, that these changes have literally taken culture and humanity off the rails. I mean, it's amazing what we have access to in the palm of our hand anymore. I mean, there are things that you can find in the palm of your hand, even while you're sitting in church, that you had to go to very dark places to find when I was a kid. I mean, you had to go places to find the things you can find so quickly and easily in the palm of your hand. And see, the world that I was raised in was different than the world my kids have been raised in. And eventually, when I have grandchildren, where the world that they will be raised in. And many of you, Viola, I can only imagine. When you talk about having 15 great-grandkids, what, what, what changes they'll experience. And in terms of religion, our world has sort of changed religion as well. Things have changed as well. Because of all the cultural influences, I think even faith has changed. There's been a shift in our culture. And today what I'd like to do is, before we look at our article of faith in regards to the Word of God and Scriptures, I'd like to talk to you today about the shift that we have experienced in our world morally, culturally, religiously, politically even a little bit. So first, I don't know if you are aware of this, but did you know that in the world that we're living in now that there has been a decline in the people of faith and there's been uh, an increase in the, people, in the number of people that lack any faith at all. Did you know that the, the, that the numbers are going down of people who believe in, in faith, whether it's Christianity, Catholicism, Mormonism, Buddhism, Mormonism? And, and there's been a shift in, there's been a shift culturally to, uh, to, that allows people to kind of believe whatever they want to believe about faith. You can write your own faith. You can determine your own belief system. In fact, some studies show that, that only 35%, I'm going to pick on a couple of groups of people today just a little bit, but uh, that 35% of millennials, do you know who millennials are? Believe it or not, millennials, the number of millennials, you're getting older. So let me, let me kind of give you an idea of who millennials are. Millennials are people that, are, that were born from 1982 to 2002. Don't raise your hand, but if you were born from 1982 to 2002, when we look at those names that they've given different groups of people, you're, you're a millennial. And, and studies show that only 35% of all millennials are people of faith. In fact, when you narrow that group of people down, when you look at people that are, that are around 20 to 40 years old right now, those that are college age, college age millennials, today are predominantly, most of them, are religiously unaffiliated or even opposed 
to faith. In fact, millennials ages 20 to 31 are what we are considering right now in America the least religious people in the country. In fact, only one out of every four people that are around that 20 to 31 age have a faith background, have, have a faith of their own. And then just really 60% of millennials, uh, and, and on the other side of that, 60% of millennials, they would say that they believe that Christianity is judgmental and, 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 is, and it actually shows various forms of prejudice. That Christianity is intolerant. Studies show that youth raised in homes where there's some degree of Christianity, even children that have been raised in a Christian home, so your children and grandchildren that have been raised in the church, when they hit college age, when, when they get out of high school, just under half of those children will abandon faith altogether, will jump out of the church altogether. That half of all kids raised in your families will walk away from their faith. And that only 20% of them, 20% of that 50% will return to some form of faith in their life, especially when they hit some of those difficult uh, seasons, 20, uh, in their 20s to 30s. There's an author named James Avery White, and he wrote a book called The Rise of the Nuns. Have you ever heard that? The Rise of the Nuns. And it's not the nuns, N-U-N-S. It's the nuns, N-O-N-E. Meaning that, and his book was kind of written about those people in our, in our world, specifically in America, that have no religious faith at all. They have none. And so the first shift that we've seen kind of in our world is this departure, this, this walk away, this drift away from faith. We've also kind of seen a second shift morally, morally and culturally, and that is a shift to moral, what they call moral relativism. And, and what this looks like is that two-thirds of Americans say that morality is really the opinion of the individual, that whatever you think is right, is right. It's, it's, it's kind of this concept like uh, it may be wrong it may, it may be wrong for you. You may think it's wrong for you to do that, but I say it's right for me, and so I'm going to do that. Morality is relative. It, it's, it's based on who you are and what you believe and what you think is right, what you think is wrong, what you think is okay. And on the heels of a lack of faith, when you, when you add relative morality, then what we find is kind of our third shift, which is a rejection of absolute truth. In fact, a lot of our culture today believes that there's no absolute truth. We find that this third shift can sometimes even be the most difficult because there's a, a lack of belief that there's any absolute truth. And if there's no absolute truth, then right and wrong can be whatever you want to define it as. See, in our world today, there's an open debate on what is true and what isn't. And, and we see this in so many different things, whether it's gender studies. I don't know why we have to study genders because God's Word says I created them male and female. 
I'm going to get into trouble for that comment probably. Don't email me on that one. We get in, you know, we, there's so many things that we want to try to um, shift or change based on our own beliefs or our own, um, maybe, maybe not even what we believe, but because we have family members or people that we love that have drifted into a path or, or they've chosen a lifestyle and we have had to make that lifestyle right to be able to continue to love them or to feel like you can have a relationship. You have to accept them the way they are even though it's something that you don't necessarily believe in. A couple of years ago, uh, do you remember a couple of years ago Starbucks was having these, uh, these incidents where they were like, people were coming into their shops and they were like not letting people use the bathrooms. Do you remember that a couple years ago when you had to buy coffee to use Starbucks' bathroom? When they announced that, I just went into every Starbucks and went to the bathroom just for fun, just to see if somebody would kick me out. And I never really got kicked out. But anyways, um, they, so in, in, the, in the aftermath of that, in the aftermath, when, when people got critical of Starbucks because they were, they were being you know, possessive of their toilets, um, they did this teaching. They brought this whole new teaching out at Starbucks. All the Starbucks employees had to go through that. And they had two, kind of two main principles in that teaching. And, and the first one was this. If, you, if your conversation with someone, if your conversations start with someone and they start to get off track, what they were instructed, taught to do, trained to do, is if your conversation started off on the wrong foot, you were to pause that conversation and restart. Now, that's not such a bad idea. In fact, husbands and wives, that should be probably a good rule of thumb. I mean, if you start a conversation with your wife and it gets off track, pause and restart. I mean, if you start to present the jet ski or the boat you want to buy now that spring has sprung and she is like opposed to it, pause and restart and just keep restarting. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. That's not good advice. I, I, let's not do that. I'm not, wrong, wrong theory. Never mind. But, but that was Starbucks's theory. If it was wrong, if, if your conversation started off on the wrong foot, just pause and restart. And that's not a bad thought. But then here's where I think it got a little bit sideways. Then their next, their, their next philosophy to, to embrace the, the, today's culture of the world was to speak your truth to someone and honor their truth. And that's where I think things have gotten off track. Because if there's no absolute truth, and if, if, I, if my truth is this and Larry's truth is that, and they are opposed, how do we settle how do we settle things? How do we arrive at the truth? See, we're living in a world right now where absolute truth is absent from many conversations, many philosophies and theories. I wonder, is there any, anyone here today that, that would say that would be Bold enough to stand in a conversation and say, wait, 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 wait. That's just not true. For, 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 for the entire portion of human history that we know, what you just said is false. Are, are, are there people in the world today that are willing to say that? Well, thankfully, in the Bible, we had a man named Paul who was just such a man. He was willing to stand up, no matter the circumstance, and say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not correct. In fact, that is wrong, and I'm going to correct that, and I'm going to use God's word 
to correct that. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul, Paul gives us a picture of this. And let me read this to you. He said in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says this. He says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And what Paul is saying here is that if you're a Christian, when culture shifts, if you're a Christ follower, if you believe in God, if you're in relationship with Jesus, when culture shifts, when, when, when the world seems to get off the rails, when, 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 when things seem to go left when they should stay right, when, when things are getting goofy as a Christian, when things shift, you don't. You stand firm. When, cur- when culture bends, you don't bend. Do you know what I believe really firmly? It has been the death of the family unit in the, uni- in, in the United States of America. It is when we bend to the world's culture. It doesn't seem like much either. It doesn't seem like much when we just bend a little bit. But if you bend a little bit, before too long, you bend a little more. And you bend a little more. And if you drew a line from where you started to where you've bent to, you, and you stretch it out over, let's say, a, a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 22-year-old's life, we have gotten way off track. I mean, if this is the straight line, if half court right here is the straight line, and we shift or we bend just a little bit, and I'm just off center right now, But if you multiply that by 16, 18, 20 years, that angle is way out there now. Way out there. See, for a a Christian, when culture is corrupted, you resist the corruption. And culture's always shifting. But Christians should be stable, loyal, and faithful. But all too often, we too are drawn into the conversation with that question. Well, what if I don't know what I believe about what is true and right? True and right. Right and wrong. Moral and immoral. I would say to you, I would argue with you today, that you need to know what you believe. You need to know what you believe about things. And you need to, you need to find out what you believe when you don't have the answer. When you need the answer, you need to find the answer. So today's question for you is what do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about this book that I'm holding, that many of you are holding, that you have access to on your phone? Do you believe that the Bible is truth? Do you believe that it is the standard for Christian living? Do you believe it is a a, a measuring tool so that we can measure our lives against God's will and ways. Do you believe that? Or do you have a separate, different belief? Now, let me say this. Depending on who you are and where you're at and where you're at with this book, I want you to know something, that today it is okay for you to not know what you believe about this book. It, it is, it is, in fact, you're in the absolute best place you could be in if you don't know what you believe about this book. Because everyone in this room at some point in time, if you believe that this word is truth, 
you had a belief system. You were somewhere where you're like, I'm not sure what I believe about this book. I mean, I was there. I was there 22 years ago. I, I would have been one of those nuns. Not a nun, you know, but a, one of those nuns. But see, here's the problem. Here's the problem with people. Especially people, and this, this goes for people who've read and people who have not read the Bible, but a lot of people don't know what they believe about the Bible because they've never looked at it. They've never really read it. And they've never read it through the understanding or the relationship with Jesus. Did you know that the book that I hold in my hand is the most published, most translated, most sold book of all time. No one's even, no, no other publication is even close. But even with that being said, so many people have not read this book. Even Christians. Hey, let, let's do a quick exercise. Everyone, everyone in the room that can stand up, stand up. If you can stand up, stand up. This is what we know about people that, 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 that have read the Bible. This is, this is Christians, okay? Now, and I'm going to preface this by saying, I'm going to ask a few of you to sit down in a second, and, and this is not implying that you don't read the Bible. It's just for the purpose of the exercise. So don't feel like I'm singling you out. So if you, I, so every other person in the, in, in the room, every other person, try to do this. It might be a little bit difficult, but every other person, sit down. Every other person, sit down. Every other person. Okay, now, now look around the room. You guys did really good. Now look around the room. This represents how many people, how many Christians actually read the Bible. Look around. In a church, in a room this size with this many people, Christians, we, studies show that only 50% of all Christians even read their Bible. That's kind of crazy, isn't it, to think that in a room this size, and so if you're sitting down, boy, I tell you, you're in trouble. No, I'm kidding. You, everybody sit down. I told you. But 50% of all Christians don't even read their Bible. In fact, the only Bible they get is when they come to church. And that's why I think it's important that we open it and we read it. And we, we talk about it on Sunday morning. That's why I keep you guys here for 45 minutes or so. Now let me give you a couple of examples of what the Bible says. First, in regards to sin. Galatians chapter 5, 19 and 20 says this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, and factions. So this is kind of interesting because we, those words that I just read to you, um, those are very commonplace in our world today. And if, you're, if, 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 you have a, if you have a problem understanding whether jealousy's okay for me and not okay for you, or whether it's right or wrong, the world says you can debate those things. But God's Word just said that the acts of the flesh, the things that are sin, are obvious. It says it's, they're obvious, right? So, so a fist fight is obviously not right. I mean, I, I think we could agree on that. Unless you're in a squared circle with gloves or in a cage, 
You know, it's not okay to be somewhere and get sideways with someone and decide, my, my course of action is to deck the guy. I mean, I think we could sort of agree on that, but for some crazy reason, our world thinks that's different. But the Bible's clear. Secondly, the Bible says this, because, and, and this, is, this is kind of that angle in who God is and how he wants to interact with us that, that gives us the ability to choose. Okay, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this. He said that, and he's talking about himself. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. So in one place in Scripture, Paul identifies the things that are wrong, and he says these should be obvious. And then in another place in Scripture, he says, but you have the right to choose whether you are a jealous person or you're not a jealous person. And you have the right to choose whether you're going to be prone to fits of rage or you're going to be a peacemaker. Now let us, let's take another look at what the Bible says about the Bible through Scripture. And, and here, here's what I want to do. But before we go that far, I want to read to you our article of faith. What we believe as Nazarenes, as a church of the Nazarene, about God's Word. It's article of faith number four, and this is how it reads. We believe in the plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, by which we understand the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, given by divine inspiration, inerrantly revealing the will of God concerning us and all things necessary to our salvation, so that whatever is not contained therein is not to be enjoined as an article of faith. So when I break this down, uh, first of all, plenary, which is a, a big word that simply means complete, means that this is all we need. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to subtract from it. So the first thing we see is that the Bible is complete, that it was given to us through divine inspiration, that it has, it has everything we need to know on how to make to get ourselves back in right relationship with God. It's all in here. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to subtract it. And it's inerrant. We also have this understanding as Christians that God's word, that scripture is God-breathed. And we see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look at it in a second. But what that means is that God breathes out his word and his scriptures. And it doesn't mean that he breathed it out 2,000 years ago and it's not breathing anymore. It means it's still breathing today. The Bible's complete. It's without error. It was given to us through divine inspiration. And that divine inspiration means that real people wrote down what they saw and experienced and God divinely inspired them to write down. People who were eyewitnesses that people who investigated everything that the eyewitnesses told them, and they recorded these things. Another uh, plug for The Chosen. How many of you are watching The Chosen? Raise your hand. How many of you started? Raise your hand. Watch The Chosen. It's really good. Uh, we just watched episode six or seven, Kristen and I did. And in this episode, there... Um, the, the friends, you guys remember the story in the Bible where the friends bring the, the crippled guy on a mat and they can't get him into the house where Jesus is teaching so they climb up on the roof and they dig a hole in the roof and they lower him down 
and, they, they, and then this guy ends up in the floor and Jesus heals this crippled guy. Well, there's a huge crowd around and there's a, there's a scene, it's just such a cool scene because James and John, the sons of Alphaeus, they're, they're sitting kind of outside and they're looking through the window and, and all this is happening and, and John starts to talk to James and James is writing and he's like, shut up, I'm trying to write this down. And it was just this perfect picture of what actually happened. These guys were there and they saw and they're like, somebody better write this down. Somebody better take notes about what's happening because people are going to want to hear this. And it was such a cool thing. And it was just, it was, it was, you know, just kind of that, that reaffirmation that when these things happened, people took notes. They had journals. They wrote things down. And that's how we ended up having this 2,000 plus years later. But believe it or not, there are people that despite the, the, the number of books and the number of authors and all that, which I'm going to touch on it a little bit later, there are some that would say that the Bible is not applicable or even relevant for today. They would say it's an ancient book. It's just a book filled with good thoughts and principles. But I thought today we would let the Bible speak to us and help us discover its relevance by what it says about itself. And here's the thing. I, I think... I think the church, sometimes preachers, we struggle with this. Do you know that there's, there are some preachers, pastors in the world that really get accused of not ever preaching the word? They, they stand up in front of their congregations and they preach, but they don't preach the word. And I think the reason why a lot of pastors don't preach the word is because the word preaches itself. And for some reason, they think it diminishes their role, or they think that they have thoughts that are greater than that and they want to share their own thoughts rather than and i tell you what i i'm not smart enough to figure that out and so um my, my my philosophy has always been to preach the word because it won't fail you and here's another reason why i think it's important to preach the word is because if i preach the word then you get less of me and more of it and that's always a good thing too so if you have your bibles with you Open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's right in the middle of the New Testament. And this is an interesting book because Timothy was a young preacher. He was a, he was a young pastor. Paul had gone and planted a church and he'd left Timothy in charge. And then what Paul would do is he would go on to a new city and he would start another church, appoint another pastor, and he would go on to the next place. And Timothy was a young man, young preacher with great faith. And he had, he had, he, he was, he was a good pastor. He was a good preacher. And, and, but what Paul would do is he would write back to them to kind of check on them and, and to give them further instruction and to encourage them. And so in this letter that Paul writes to Timothy, we find this chunk of Scripture that helps us discover the relevance of the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Whew. Man, how do you like to get that letter to start with? I mean, you're preaching and you're pastoring and you're trying to point people towards God and Paul says, hey, but guess what? 
there's going to be some jacked up people in the world. And I want you to know something. We live with a bunch of jacked up people. This world is weird and wild and crazy. He says these people, they have, they, 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 they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. He says, have nothing to do with such people. Verse 6, he says, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are always swayed by, by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as James and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. Have you ever known somebody that just likes to argue to argue? I mean, it could be right in front of them. I mean, there could be a glass of clear water and they will argue with you that it's cloudy. There are going to be people in our world that are just going to argue against the truth of God's word just to simply argue. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. And they'll not get very far because, as in the case of the, those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. That's the one thing that I struggle with most of all, is when somebody brings some crazy idea or thought about st stuff today, and, and you just look at it, and, and any right-thinking person should be like, wait a minute, that just doesn't seem right. Verse 10 says, You, however, know all about my teachings, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But guys, it's, this isn't going to be easy. While evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to know how to tackle this big, bad, mean world? It's right here in this book. The answer is right here. I want you to know something about this book. This, beat, this book has a heartbeat. This book beats. And guess what? You have a heartbeat. And your heart is either going to beat with this or against it. Your, your heart's going to be with it or against it. See, we live in a world where everyone speaks what they claim to be the truth, but in actuality, all that is is their simple opinion. Everything and everyone has a platform. Just because we see it, just because we hear it, even read it, doesn't mean it's true. So how do we determine in this world where there's so much moral relativity and there's you define your own truth. How do we determine? How do we discern? How do we know what is true? Well, that's why what you believe about this book is so important. Because if you believe what this book says about all things, and you apply it, and you filter, 
and you, and you draw everything through it, and it reveals to you, it will reveal to you what is true and what is right. Today I want to give you three things to help you see and understand the importance of this book. First, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, he said, listen, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. What he's saying is, what you know, what you know in Scripture up to this point, the Torah, the, five, the first five books of the Bible, I didn't come to abolish that. I came to fulfill it. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, you know those first five books. You know what's in the, you know, in the beginning. and You know that. Well, guess what? What you're going to discover in me is that I was there. I was part of that. You're going to find me in there. He says, I have, come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Verse 19 says, Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this is true. You can count on it. Everything, everything, everything will happen that happens in this book is true. So if Jesus says this is true and you've accepted him, then what? Then what? Well, first of all, you can, you can count on it because Jesus said it. Secondly, there's, there's some incredible accuracy in this book. Did you know that how accurate this book is? In this book, just in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, if you just, if today, if you went home and you read the book of Luke and you, and you read the book of Acts, you would write down that there are 32 different countries that are mentioned, 54 cities, nine islands, and you can look back in human history and you can find all of them. All 54 cities, all 32 countries, all nine islands, you can find. And they're written down in, a, in two books in this Bible that were written 2,000 years ago. This book was written over three different continents, authors over three different continents, in three different languages. And the book has one central message. How in the world does that happen? How do authors on three separate continents that spoke three different languages write a book that when you read it from beginning to end has the same message all the way through? There's another thing. God still speaks to us today. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32 says this. See that you do all I commanded you. Do not add to it or take away from it. So we don't need to change anything about it. It still speaks to us as valid as it was when it was written. Third, it is God who breathed this word into existence, and it is God who is still breathing it, and it is God who is still speaking why is that important? Because there are other voices. There are other voices in this world. And when you hear all those other voices, when you hear voices talking about this, that, or the other thing, and I could get in trouble by telling you what the this, that, or the other thing are, but if you filter all of those things through this word, if you examine those things through this word, if, if you examine those voices, 
you'll discover that what they're speaking compared to what God speaks is drastically different. And as a Christian, as a Christ follower, if you're choosing to put your faith in God, we must embrace the voice of God and reject voices that are in contrast, stark contrast to His. Embrace and receive the voices that are in harmony. And in fact, that's, that's a good point. You know, there are people that will speak. There are pastors, preachers that will speak. If I ever say something to you that is not in harmony with this book, you need to call me on it. You need to come and say, whoa, 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 pastor, you said something last Sunday. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to get mad at you. I'm not going to be upset. And my feelings aren't going to be hurt. If you say, pastor, you said something last week, and I'm not sure, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go listen to the recording. I'm going to listen to my notes. And I'm going to go, wait a minute. And if I messed it up, I'm going to correct myself. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to make it right based on here, not here. So it's important that we know the voice of God through Scripture, but it's also important that when we're hearing other voices, even pastors, preachers, teachers, that we're filtering it, we're examining what they say through this book. And then reject those who are in contrast. Reject those that speak contradiction to God's Word. Examine the voices against the scriptures. There was, there was a group of people many, many years ago called the Bereans, and we, we kind of discovered them in Acts 17. And these, the Bereans, that was, their whole, that was their whole thought process. We're going to examine everything that happens in the world against God's word. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 10 through 12, we see this. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see that Paul see that what Paul said was true. And as a result, as a result of their examination, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Examine it. When you examine it, God's will and ways will come to life. You'll discover who he is. I'll tell you one thing. Um, I, I couldn't look at this book as accurate and true and right until I knew Jesus. And once I knew Jesus, my doubts disappeared. So first, examine. Examine everything. Test the voices that you hear. Second, keep breathing it in. Verse 14 Acts, so it says, verse 14 said this, but as for you, continue what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Keep breathing it in. What do you mean by that, Scott? I mean, how do you breathe in a book? Well, you read things in this book that say, um, if you harbor anger in your heart for someone, you've already killed them. If you lust after someone else, you've already committed adultery with them in their heart. And so how do you breathe that? Well, when you're driving and that person cuts you off and he's driving a green VW Bug and he didn't use his turn signal, (laughs) that that would be me, you breathe the anger. You, 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 when the anger rises up, you exhale it and you breathe in. I'm just going to let Pastor have his, let him go. 
You just go, Pastor. You, 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 you exhale the anger, the rage, the, 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 dis, the, the distrust, whatever that is, whatever those emotions, whatever those feelings are, how do you breathe God's word? You exhale the bad and you inhale his goodness. You say, I'm going to breathe in good. When, 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 when your eye drifts, after I became a Christian, um, I don't want to pick on the guys, but I'm going to pick on you here. Uh, some of us, and you might even struggle with this still, some have a wandering eye. Five says, your husband's eye ever wandered. Mine did. Even after I became a Christian, Chris and I would be in the mall, and my eye would wander, and she got mad at me. She got mad. She called me on it. She called me on it, and, and because I was a Christian now, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. That's, yeah. I mean, God's word says that if I look, even look at another woman, right? So what did I do? I began to breathe. I began to exhale that temptation to look at someone else, and I inhaled Kristen, the love I have for her, the gift that God gave me in her. See, that's how you breathe in God's word. You know it. You read it, you know it. And so when something comes your way, you're like, whoa, got to get rid of that. And I got to draw something. In fact, God's word says, take captive every thought that, that, that doesn't honor him and throw it away and replace it with something that's good. Right? So that's how you breathe God's word. You breathe God's word by exhaling the garbage and inhaling, and inhaling life. In fact, here's the thing. Let me ask you. How many of you, while I've been preaching, have had to remind yourself to breathe? Nobody. See, God's word wants to be so important to you, so embedded in you, so about who you are, that you do it without even thinking about it. That's what becoming a new creature in Christ, as Larry brought, mentioned this morning, that's what that looks like. That's what that means. All of a sudden, you're, you do things you don't have the ability to do on your own. I mean, you don't have to tell yourself to breathe. There's just this system that God put in you that tells you to breathe. And so wouldn't it be crazy if we could tap into God's spirit so closely that all of a sudden those good things just start coming out of you and you don't even, they just happen. It's like breathing. It's that easy. So keep breathing it in. And here's the thing. Keep breathing Scripture. Keep reading. Keep applying. Because here's what Scripture will do. It will never fail to do this. Scripture will always lead you back to God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for good works. Keep breathing it in because as you breathe it in, it's always going to draw you back to God. And then finally, just recognize God's word, it's useful. God's word is so useful. I, I mentioned to you, I think a week or so ago, um, whenever I have a married couple come to me for counseling, I, I, before they leave my office, you know, if they've been fighting, if they've got some issue in their life, you know, I print off 
that First Corinthians 13, the love scripture, love is patient, love is kind. You know that one? I print it off. And I tell them, you put this up in places you're going to see it. Put it on the mirror in the bathroom. Put it on the refrigerator. Put it everywhere. And start your day. When you wake up in the morning and you're brushing your teeth, love is patient, love is kind, doesn't envy, doesn't hold grudges. I'm just going to keep thinking that over my spouse all day long. I'm going to just keep breathing that over my spouse all day long. And I, I, have to, I have got to believe that if you breathe that over your spouse, that you could be married to the most annoying person in the world and God will give you grace to love them unconditionally. Because his word will always draw you back. It's useful to put it into practice. Mark 10 says this, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. What does this have to do with anything, Pastor? Well, guess what? God's word speaks of the marriage relationship. And you know what this word just says? And, and if, if you are a person who's been divorced, God's grace is so good for you too. So don't, don't take this the wrong way. But if you're a married couple right now, God's word is useful because it, it, it tells us that you got married and what he meant for the two of you was forever. And, and see, what this does, what, what this piece of scripture can do, if you breathe this over your, over your marriage, what, what happens is maybe, just maybe, you're in a marriage that's struggling right now, and divorce is a common practice in your family. Mom and dad got divorced. Grandma and grandpa were divorced. Uncle Bill divorced his Aunt Sue, you know. And that was commonplace for you. But God's word, as a Christ follower, says, no, that's not God's plan. And so if you breathe and you, you breathe God's word over your marriage and you breathe God's word into it and recognize that his word is useful, this scripture I just read to you says, wait a minute, we can do marriage God's way and say we're going to get through anything that's difficult. Or we can do God's, or we can do marriage the world's way or my family's way, or your family's way, and just be generationally broken, or we can change it. That's the one thing that Kristen and I really spoke over our marriage when we first got married, that divorce was not going to be a, a word we would discuss. It was not an option. So now what? Well, John 1, 9, it says this, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. And he, will forgive us our, and he will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, God's word is so good and it is so powerful and it is so true. And if we will, if we will open God's word and if we will read God's word and we, if we will breathe it and if we will apply it and we will live it, then God's word will speak into your heart. It will change you. Hebrews 4, uh, verse 12 through 13 says this, For the word of God is alive and active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirits, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You know what God's word will do in your life if you just let it? 
it will open you up and do surgery. And God's Spirit will take what's bad away and replace it with what is good and pleasing and right. So our role, our job is to submit, is to be subject to and to submit ourselves to the Word of God. Romans 12, 17 and 18. Do not repay anyone for evil. Ah, that'd be a great concept in our world today. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And it is, if it is, and as far as, if, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So, God's word is all we need. It's, it's plenary. It means it's complete. It's inerrant, which means there's, nothing wrong with it and it has everything you need to be made right in God's eyes all we got to do is examine it all we have to do is breathe it and use it and then let it open us up let it read us let it speak to us and then finally submit to it Submit to it. Just let it, let it be your authority. Let it be your measure. Let it be your standard. And then when, when life throws things at you, let it be your counsel. Let it be your wisdom. Let it be the final word. You know, if God's word gives you clear direction, submit to it. He will never let you down. How do you know that, Scott? I mean, well, because God's never let me down. I've certainly let him down. But he's never let me down. I mean, and he does crazy things. I mean, he he does crazy things. He provides in, in ways that we couldn't figure out how he did. He opens doors that we didn't figure would ever open. I mean, I mean he does super crazy things like uh, he, he does super crazy things like give you a child, you know, seven, eight years after you thought you were done having kids just to be funny. That's a true story. We thought we were done having kids. We sold everything we had, baby. We were in the mall making fun of people, schlepping diaper bags and strollers because our kids were walking around. They, you know, they were Game Boy in it in the mall. And we were just, and we just made fun of them. And all of a sudden, whammo, God said, guess what? You guys are pregnant again. God does incredible things. God does so many incredible things. We had a couple in South Dakota. They had a baby that was not supposed to even be, it, it, would, it was going to be stillborn. God gave him 26 hours. And it 26, God, gave, gave, God gave Tom and Karen 26 hours of a child that wasn't even supposed to make it to deliver. God does crazy things. Moves people to Ohio. Calls a heathen to be a full-time pastor. I mean, he just does crazy things. If you'll let his word speak into your life, if you'll examine it, if you'll let it, if 
feel every life decision filter through it. If you'll use it and then submit to it. He won't let you down. I guarantee it. We will let each other down, but God will not fail. Trust his word. So important to us, it's our fourth article of faith. We believe it. I hope today that you came in and you're like, ah, I'm not so sure about this whole Bible thing. That you'll do at least one thing. You'll take a look at it. And if you are, if you take a look at it, here's what I want you to do. Don't start at the very beginning. I want you to know Jesus before you start at the beginning. So go to the book of John. New Testament, go about two-thirds of the way into the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Gospels. They're the good news of Jesus. Those, those, are, those are really the, 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 the nuts and bolts of Jesus' earthly ministry. You start in the book of John. Read how John describes his best friend, who, oh, by the way, was the Savior of the world. Start there. If you get that far, go to the book of Acts. It'll tell you how the church started. And I guarantee you, if you open your heart, you'll open your mind, you'll know Jesus. When you get to the end of those two books, you'll know Jesus. And when you know Jesus, then you go back to the beginning and start at Genesis chapter 1. I guess what we're going to do as a church, a couple weeks we're going to have a, a, a revival with Dr. Stan Reeder. And after that, we're going to start a Bible reading plan as a church. You, I'm, I'm not going to drag you into it like I'm dragging spring into, into Ohio. But I want to offer each and every one of you to be a part of a Bible reading plan. We're just going to read the Bible. And, and if, if you will read... The, the Bible, if you'll pick up a Bible and read a small portion of Scripture, five out of seven days, in one year, we as a church will read through this entire book together. It's a simple plan. I'm going to give you it on paper. If you have uh, 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 on your phone, if you have the YouVersion app, you can find, the Bible, find this plan on, on that app as well. We're going to read through it. Occasionally, I'm going to preach through what we're talking about. In Sunday school, we're not going to divert from your normal curriculum, but we're going to encourage you in your Sunday school classes to talk about what you read during the week. And so if you're one of these people who've never read through the Bible, we want to do it together as a church. And so in the, in the beginning of April, we're going to start in April, and then in May, next year in May, at, which is the end of our church year, May 31st is the end of our church year, we're going to celebrate. I'm going to have a special gift for everyone who who gives me the confidence that you completed your plan, you'll receive a special gift from me. I don't know what it's going to be yet. It might be something I make. Wow, i got lots of laughter. I'm kind of pretty good at stuff like that. Anyway, but you're going to get something from me that says, hey, I read through the Bible in a year. And then we're probably going to do it again and again and again. Because everything we need to know, to know God and to be used by Him is right here. And, and you do me a favor. If I ever get off of that, you come talk to me. You come talk to me. You have, you have the authority given to you by God and me that says, listen, if I get off track, you come and say to me, hey, pastor, I think you've drifted a little way. We need to get back to the word. And I'll do my very best as your pastor to always stay within these pages. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to join me in April to read through together. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you gave us 
your word. You breathed it out into these individuals' lives. 66 books written over three different continents, three different languages. We can go through the Bible and we can find evidence that we can go back. We can, we, like in the book of Acts, we can go back to those countries, those cities, those, those areas, and we can pinpoint them on a map. We can say, this is exactly where Jesus was on the day that he, 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 told, the, he told that woman caught in adultery to, to stand up and to leave her life of sin. We, we, we know where the well is where Jesus sat with the Samaritan woman and said, hey, hon, you got issues in your life because you're, you're with a guy that's not your husband and, and you've been with four other guys. And what you're looking for, what you're searching for from them, you're never going to get because what you're truly searching, what you're searching for is what I have to offer. And it's not a romantic love. It's an agape love. It's an all-encompassing love. And you've been, you've been running after this guy and that guy trying to find that. And I'm the one that brings that. You can go, we can go to that well. We know where it's at. You can visit the empty tomb. We know, we can walk the path that you walked the day you died for all of us. We can, we can look back and we can, God, there's a, there's a church that's built right on top of Peter's house and we can visit it. So we can trust that your word is true because there's evidence. But even more so, the reason why we can trust your word is true is because for those of us who know Jesus, Jesus gives us this assurance, this confidence, this trust. That who in the world would die for me so that I could live in right standing with God? Why would I ever think that if a man was... If, if he would do that for me, that he would ever steer me wrong on anything else. And we believe that. Help us in our unbelief to trust your word, to trust who you are, and that you want to have a relationship with us that not only brings us hope and healing and life and an abundant life, but you want us to share it with others. Help us to go from this place with the confidence that God, you are for us, you aren't against us, and you give us, you give us every tool to be a light in this world. Help us be a light where we go. Help us to trust your word, to test it, examine it, count on it, trust it, and use it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you all. Have a great day. We'll see you. Hey, if you're, if you're not doing anything Wednesday night, you should come to church. We got stuff for kids and youth and teens and even some old old people show up and do a bible study here and there so we'll see you later